and welcome to the Reorg Europe podcast, your weekly roundup of the most interesting trends and developments in performing credit, stressed and distressed, restructuring and post-reorg in the European and CMEA markets. It's Tuesday, August the 15th, and I'm Caterina Dassier. And I'm Andrew Ross. Coming up this week, we will be delving into Lebanon's central bank following the release of a report which revealed years-long misconduct by the bank's former governor. Then we will talk through some key insights from Reorg's A&E Insight series. But first, we will discuss German elevator parts manufacturer Witter, which is nearing the 70% threshold for backing from its first lien creditors for its restructuring proposal. Victor's a long-running restructuring finally seems to be coming to an end. Rob, you have been following this situation for a long time. So what were the main challenges in getting the deal agreed and what happens next? Hi, Kat. Faced with rising interest rates, Vitter had started negotiations with its lenders to address a potential liquidity shortfall and find a long-term solution for its capital structure back in February already. Sponsor Bain had provided a 10 million short-term loan and the second lien lenders deferred the March interest payment to provide the company with some breathing room to negotiate a deal. Initially, most lenders assumed that negotiations would be fairly straightforward. It had been widely expected that KKR, which had bought up Vitor's entire 240 million second lien debt, was aiming to take control via debt for equity swap and that sponsor Bain was willing to hand over the keys given it had managed to recoup its initial investment when it had sold a roughly 30% stake to PSP Investments. But the process was complicated after management. In conjunction with its advisors, Alvarez Marcel, A.T. Kearney and Alex Partners formulated a new business plan that was a lot more conservative than stakeholders, including KKR, had expected. That resulted in a new money need of up to 100 million euros, which was far higher than expected. And Rob, why was the new money need so much higher? It was partly because management forecast a significant drop in EBITDA in 2023 to around 78 million from 92 million in 2022 under its new business plan, but also partly because the restructuring was set to cost between 30 to 40 million euros in advisory fees, given the large number of advisors to all the different stakeholders. While KKR still remained committed to taking control, It initially sought to provide the new money at the OPCO level alongside the first lien debt. That was immediately rejected by the first lien steering committee members, who put together their own proposal to provide new money if necessary, which included shifting part of the first lien debt to a holdco pick, preserve cash and delever the company. This forced KKR to agree to put in new money at the holdco level or risk losing its entire investment in the second lien debt. The fund initially tabled a 75 million new money offer in exchange for 95% of the equity. After it improved the offer to 85 million, the steering committee accepted the deal, since most lenders preferred having KKR come in as a sponsor, rather than owning and having to manage the company itself. Negotiations were protracted and definitely went down to the wire since Vito needed to get a deal in place, given that it would have been unable to get its full year 22 accounts signed off otherwise and faced the risk of having to file for insolvency. The deal has now been put to the rest of the syndicate. Vito is targeting unanimity in which case lenders stand to receive a 25 basis point consent fee. If it falls short, it'll look to implement it via UK scheme of arrangement. The level of lenders that agreed to lock up was close to 70% as of last week, so it's not far off the 75% threshold required for a scheme. And Rob, uh, what are the terms of this proposed restructuring? 
The deal will slash leverage to 3.8 times through the OPCO debt and 8 times through the HOLDCO debt, based on 94 million of LTM March EBITDA, by reinstating 390 million of the first lien debt and shifting the other 257 million to the HOLDCO level and equitizing the 240 million second lien debt in full. The reinstated first lien debt has been extended to September 2028 and now pays Euribor plus 550 basis points, while the HOLDCO PIC debt pays 0.1% cash and 5.9% PIC and matures in December 2028. KKR will receive 112 million euros of the new HOLDCO debt, which includes accrued second lien interest and 95% of the equity in the restructured company. Previous sponsor Bain and minority shareholder PSP will jointly receive the other 5% equity. And how has Victor's performance been holding up throughout the process? So based on the first six months of 2023, Victor's budget looks far too conservative. The group outperformed with record first half sales of 457 million, which were up 3% on the same period last year, and 4% ahead of the 440 million budgeted. Adjusted EBITDA reached 46.8 million in the first half, which was up 4% on the 44.9 million the group generated in the first half of last year, and 11% ahead of 42 million budgeted. However, the outlook is uncertain, with Vitor's order intake during the first half falling 9% year over year to 445 million, which was 1% below its budget. The biggest risk is that Vitor's core MNC clients reduce their exposure to the company and diversify their suppliers while China's real estate problems remain a concern as well. Thank you, Rob. We would like to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience. So please take a moment to complete the short survey and the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. And now to the Middle East. Lebanon defaulted on its sovereign euro bonds in March 2020 as it entered a financial and banking crisis. A fresh report delivered to lawmakers last week offers a glimpse into the dealings of Lebanon's central bank in the five years leading up to that very default. And Magnus Sherman is here to tell us more. So Magnus, what's worth highlighting from the report? Yes, well, there's a, there's a few things to highlight here, I would say. Uh, overall, the, the conclusion we can draw from this is that it's a very eye-opening and sobering read uh, and will also be for, um, for the bondholders that are involved in, in Lebanon. Let's just remember that the bonds of Lebanon, they have about $37 billion, including arrears. Um, they are quoted around $0.08, cents, so very distressed levels. And, uh, and some of the findings from this report will probably be one of the explanations. In, in, in short, the, the big conclusion is that the now former governor, um, Salame, Riyad Salame, he had a near monopoly on decision making at the central bank, BDL. And this came, this was in, in all sorts of policies, uh, into financial engineering programs, um, big, big policy uh, programs as well. He would sort of come in, uh, give a statement and everyone would just agree with him. And the, the report, which is produced by Alvarez and Marcel, runs over th- 300 pages. It describes how the Central Council, which is a body uh, that's supposed to check um, the, the decision making within the BDL, was not working. Um, one of the issues there will be that the, the body itself consisted of the governor himself, so Salome, his four deputies, and then two government representatives. 
And in recent years, I think it's fair to say that Lebanon has been in a very difficult political situation. They have and have had for a long time a hung parliament, which is divided in religious and sectarian lines, and they struggle to to pass any reform. So there really is a very, very difficult political situation in Lebanon at the moment. The country doesn't have a president, hasn't had that since um, since October. So um, the Central Council didn't work, and, and um, as a result, Salome, he had a near total power of, of whatever was happening in the, uh, in the National Bank. So if we point out to, uh, to a few things, there was the financial engineering programs that they, um, they introduced over this review period, which looks at the period from 2015 to 2020. One of them was to uh, charge, um, to discount certain products to banks and then charge them a tiny commission so that they could generate um, some some income at the bank. The reason for that was that in Lebanon, under its Code of Money and Credit, Article 113, the Ministry of Finance is liable to cover any losses that there may be at the BDL. So they were very, very keen on avoiding that because the Ministry of Finance, of course, was already in a difficult position. And that meant that uh, a number of things that they launched these financial engineering programs to uh, to beef up their income. But it also meant that the BDL, uh, uh, well, for every year that, that this report uh, looks into, simply moved costs from its operations, from its P&L statement to the balance sheet, which again, some that would normally be found in an audit, but because these haven't really been properly audited and definitely not publicly disclosed, this took place every year and it allowed the BDL to avoid losses and therefore avoid the need to be bailed in, uh, sorry, bailed out by the Ministry of Finance. So they reported profits every year and they even distributed about $40 million to the um, to the Ministry of Finance, so I think that's that's a really important finding. And they had numerous projects, too too many to go into here, um, on the financial engineering end. Another uh, quite explosive finding is uh, on illegitimate commissions. Um, this is one of the schemes where uh, which um, Salome is now on the hook for. Um, it's they make reference to a request from the Swiss authorities that um, refer to more than three hundred million dollars um, being sent between the BDL and certain Swiss banks in the in to an entity linked to Riyad Salame and his brother Raja Salame um, and. Alvarez and Marcel, they confirm that some of the payments in the review period were actually made um, as the Swiss authorities said there. On top of that, they find um, more than $100 million made from the BDL to uh, a long list of other banks, um, but they can't see who in that period, who received them because the, um, the BDL has scrubbed that information from the SWIFT extracts that they, they were given to, um, to Alvarez and Marcel, so they, don't, they can't actually see who received them. The, uh, the National Bank, they cited bank secrecy laws on this, which is very convenient, of course, um, in this case. But the way they, they work to these um, commissions is that they, um, this entity in Switzerland called FORI um, had a, a, an agreement with the BDL to introduce BDL, B, 
BDL products, such as Eurobonds, to the market. And in exchange, they would charge a tiny commission. So this is 0.375% of 1%. So really a very, very low cut. Um, but on all the value of transactions in Lebanese Eurobonds, Treasury bills and deposit certificates. So a tiny commission but on a huge pool of assets. And that's how they managed to generate uh, these um, alleged more than $400 million, which, um, which the, um, the auditor, uh, sorry, the, um, the former governor is now on the hook for. So there's a number of, of very alarming findings in, uh, in this. And it, it just points to uh, this theme that we're seeing in Lebanon, that there's huge problems with governance in, in many sectors, in the public sector, in the government. And uh, the IMF has called on the Lebanese authorities to uh, get the reform program running and fast. Whenever they have a chance, they, uh, they actually very harshly criticize Lebanon for, for not getting this done. And one of the explanations, as I mentioned at the start, was, um, or is that they have this hung parliament, so they just don't get anything agreed uh, down to even very small things. At the moment, they're still um, working over the details of the 2023 budget, which, of course, you know, we're more than halfway through the year. So that gives you a, a little bit of an, an idea. And um, this report, which is which is a very uh, big, um, big document, uh, and it's it's only the preliminary findings of Alvarez and Marcel, we should say. It, it really shows a national bank that has a lot to hide and a serious need uh, for reform uh, of that institution going, going forward. We recently launched a series called A&E Insights in June. Ian Chin from our EMEA Covenants team is here to tell us more about it. Thanks for having me on. We started seeing lots of A&E transactions from the end of 2022, and so we started tracking European borrowers that have done amend and extend transactions. We gather public information, analyze these, and publish our findings under our A&E Insights series. Great, and for the uh, uninitiated, what do you mean by amend and extend transactions? So at the heart of an A&E transaction is the extension of the maturity date of a tranche of debt. As part of that extension, other terms of the debt may also be amended, hence the A in the A&E. For example, the margin might be increased. Covenant terms may also be changed depending on the credit. There's many reasons why a borrower might want to do an A&E. We have a few resources and interviews with market experts on A&Es, and I'd encourage our subscribers to delve into those. Okay, great. So could you tell us more about the details our readers might glean from our A&E Insights series? Yeah, sure. There's a lot of information, but I can give a flavor of what we track. So for example, we track the number of A&E transactions in the market. We analyze the typical debt maturity extension period, the change in the cost of the borrower. We also analyze how many deals have new money coming into the capital structure, what the new money is used for and whether any documentary terms have changed. To, to give some examples, we know that there were a rising number of A&Es seen in 2023, particularly in the second quarter. Uh, performing term loan Bs have generally extended for an average of 34 months, with a range of 23 to 51 months. Margins have also increased, but what's really interesting is the average margin increase um, decline from the first to the second quarter of this year for performing term loan Bs. 
There's been also a fair amount of new money, particularly from upsizing of term loan Bs, some of which have been used to pay down expensive second lien. And some deals have needed new equity to get the A&E over the line. Another interesting point is um, we track when borrowers have actually decided to launch their A&E relative to the maturity date of their existing debt. And so if the rate environment continues to be unfriendly to full refinancings, then we can use this information to estimate when the time is ripe for other borrowers in the market to start their A&E discussions. For example, we know that on average across all debt classes, borrowers launch their ANEs 22 months before maturity of their existing debt. And with that data, we could imagine borrowers in the market right now with debt maturing in mid-2025 may or should be thinking about coming to the market with an amendment extend transaction now. I'd encourage our subscribers to review our ANE insights analysis and to reach out to the team with any questions. Um, subscribers of our Credit Cloud database can review the underlying research data. Great, thank you, Ian. We send a weekly roundup of your content, ranging from breaking news to in-depth financial and legal analysis, as well as the latest podcasts that you can listen to and webinars that you can register to attend. Sign up to the Reorg on the Record newsletter now at reorg.com. Join thousands of industry professionals using ESGX by Reorg to address regulatory reporting and underwrite investments with ESG. Request a trial at Reorg.com or contact sales at Reorg.com for further information. More information on all the situations and events discussed in this podcast are available on our website Reorg.com. We hope you can join us next Tuesday for another Reorg Europe podcast. Until then, have a great week and thank you very much for listening.